are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Good morning again. Um, Our preaching text this morning is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 15. Matthew 6, 5 to 15. Um, Kind of trekking through again this reset series, week five of the series, we're going to be looking at prayer. Uh, ironically, uh, today was supposed to be a sermon on the worship gathering, <laughs> um, but uh, it was Memorial Day weekend, and I'd be preaching to 20 of you. Um, so uh, we changed it. Next week, that will be the sermon. This week, it's on prayer. Uh, the Lord uh, likes to joke around every once in a while. Um, so let me read this text for us, and then we'll jump right into the sermon. Hear the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. And truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others your trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, thank you for your word. Change us now, O God, through the Holy Spirit in whom we believe. And I pray, Father, that we leave equipped to approach you more boldly with our needs, with our desires. Bring our needs and desires into conformity with your needs, or with your desires. And may they resonate together as we approach you as our Father. We love you and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, You know, it's almost uh, a given, um, (laughs) ever since I started seminary back in 2010, uh, that every single Thanksgiving or Christmas, I'm going to be asked to pray for the meal. Um, I don't know if there's just some kind of threshold you cross when you enter into seminary or enter into pastoral ministry that gives you some kind of like inside track with approaching the Lord or entering into his presence. But it's regardless of who's there, regardless of whose house I'm in, whatever, I'm going to be asked to say the blessing, particularly around holidays. When it's not a holiday, nobody asks me to pray about anything. But when it's Thanksgiving or Christmas and there's a meal, preacher guys got to pray. Um... And so I do, I mean, I do, but when those things happen, which they happen uh, every Thanksgiving or Christmas, um, it also lets me into kind of the potential thinking behind the person asking me to pray for the meal at family gatherings on holidays. You know, when I'm asked to do that, it makes me think one of two things, one of two things. One, that in some people's minds, there exists this hierarchy of spirituality, that, that certain people have some kind of greater access or some other kind of level of understanding or insight that gives those people the key 
to unlock the door to approach the Lord. That somehow certain prayers aren't as good as the guy or the girls who has been to seminary or is in ministry of some kind. That God's favor rests on those people in some other special way that doesn't really rest on the common believer. It's just a simple misunderstanding of the priesthood of all believers that we all have access to the Father. And this misunderstanding is acquired sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes indirectly through maybe the churches we grew up in or have been around. I mean, how many of us grew up in traditions where the pastor, ministry leaders, deacons, they process in maybe from the back of the stage and sit on high back chairs on the stage, just waiting for their turn in the worship gathering? And they sit in these chairs and all the congregants are watching, just waiting for what kind of special message they may have received before the service started that they're going to deliver to us as the church. They sit in these places of honor, separate from the body as a whole. And it creates this divide between clergy and congregant, right? Unintentionally so, but it creates this idea that they have the access and we will receive the fruit of their access that we do not have. So when I'm asked to pray for meals at holidays, there may be some kind of this hierarchical cultural thinking in people's minds. But in addition to that, I think the second thing that I learn when people ask me to pray for meals at Thanksgiving and Christmas is that a lot of people just have an uncomfortability with prayer itself. That maybe those at the meal are afraid they're going to say something wrong. Or there's fear about being judged for their prayer not being good enough or saying the right things. Maybe they just simply don't know how to pray. So they ask me because they're intimidated at the prospect of praying. One or all of those things could be true. And if you fall into that latter camp this morning, man, you're, you're in good company. You're in great company, actually. Uh, our text for this morning is Matthew 6, 5 to 15. There's a parallel text in Luke chapter 11, verses 2 to 4, where the precursor for Jesus' teaching on prayer is the disciples come to him and they ask him, they say to him, Lord, teach us how to pray. In other words, we're not sure how to approach God, how to pray, so teach us how to do that. And Jesus, in his kindness, he does just that in our text for this morning. He teaches us how to pray. And as we're going to see, God takes delight when his people approach him in their utter dependence upon him. So just to give some context here, Matthew 5 through 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount. This is an extended time of preaching from Jesus on a variety of things. Markers of the kingdom, of people in the kingdom. He talks about anger and lust and oaths and uh, grudges and all these different things. And in the middle of all this discussion, he is consistently pitting two groups against each other. The people of the kingdom against the the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious people, the teachers of the law who were outwardly religious but inwardly had wrong motives. And he says, your righteousness, kingdom people, your righteousness should exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So at the start of Matthew 6, Jesus just starts unpacking three examples of true religion or true piety, if you want to use that word. He talks about giving, he talks about praying, and he talks about fasting. 
And he assumes that in each of these expressions of devotion, that truly worshiping people will do them. That's the assumption. And when you fast, and when you pray, and when you give, not if you fast or if you pray or if you give, He's not trying to convince the listeners to do these things, but he's assuming because they follow God and follow the teachings of God that they will be doing these already. So let's look again at Matthew 6 and read with me again verses 5 to 8. It says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So Jesus starts teaching us how to pray by teaching us how not to pray. He starts with how not to pray. And the first thing he says there not to do in verses 5 and 6 is do not pray for the applause of people. Do not pray for the applause of people. You must not be like the hypocrites, he says. Literally, hypocrite, the word means one who acts apart, which is what a hypocrite is. Don't be a play actor. Don't be assuming a role that's not true, pretending to be something you're not in order to receive the applause of your audience. Well, what do hypocrites do? Well, the text says they stand on street corners and synagogues that they may be seen by others. Now, just for clarification, Jesus is not saying that all public prayer is bad. All right, we prayed this morning. Uh, Not all public prayer is bad. He's not saying that prayer on street corners and churches is prohibited, that it's bad, right? The problem is also not with the physical posture of the prayer. It has nothing to do with standing, right? People stand and sit and kneel and lie prostrate before the Lord. In a variety of places in the scriptures. The problem is not of these things. The problem, the issue at hand, are the motives of the heart. The weight of the verse falls upon the words that they may be seen by others. It's to be recognized, honored for their piety and their godliness. And just a word of caution here for us, if you're like me, which I'm, I hate that I'm like this, and I hope you're not like me, but if you're like me, when you hear a prohibition like this, when you hear Jesus say something like this, my mind immediately goes to people who would fit into this category, right? That guy or that girl, man, he's talking to them, right? My mind just becomes so judgmental, just looking for others to fit this description, but that's literally impossible based on what Jesus has just said, Right? What I mean by that is, is you and I can't read the motivations of the heart, which that's what he's talking about, a motivation of the heart, which you and I do not have supernatural x-ray vision to discern the intentions of the heart in every single person we see. The point of this particular admonition is not to look to others, but to look at yourself, to look at your own heart. And even in looking at your own heart, sometimes we can't even tell the motivations of our own hearts. How much less can we tell the motivations of somebody else's heart? So he's saying, don't look out there, look in here. Don't be like these people. Don't be a hypocrite. So what is the solution to the issue of seeking the applause of men? Well, verse 6, get away from people when you pray and pray before the only one who can see in secret, for he is in secret. That's not saying that every single time you pray, you got to go into like the storage closet at your house and shut the door and just cry out to the Lord. That may be necessary, 
if you find yourself seeking the applause of men. But he's saying, get away from the attention. Get away from the applause. Get by yourself. Get alone with the Lord and seek him, for he is in the secret places. You know, God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. There's not a square inch in the entire universe that God does not occupy or see into. He's in the secret places, church. He's in those places, those times when we offer prayer upon tear-soaked pillows at night. He's in the secret places and he hears those prayers. Prayers offered up as you hold your newborn baby girl or boy at three in the morning. He's in the secret places and he hears those prayers. The prayers desperately uttered in the silence of loss. He is in those secret places and he hears those prayers. The prayers you pray in the darkness of depression and loneliness. He is in those secret places and he hears those prayers. Even in the despair of feeling like he can't even hear you. That he's not listening. He's in those secret places and he hears those prayers. Prayers prayed in the silence of quiet desperation receive the ear and the heart of God. Prayers prayed in the public places for the rewards of applause are ignored by God. Second way not to pray. Second way. We don't pray to manipulate God. We don't pray to manipulate God. The focus in verses 7 and 8 is on long prayers and repetition for the sake of coercion of twisting God's arm because of our flattery and language. Again, Jesus is not forbidding longer prayers or even repetitive prayers. Jesus himself prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane three times for the cup to pass from him. So Jesus himself prayed repetitive prayers. That's not the prohibition here. Rather, again, the issue at hand is motive. Do we feel like we have to string together the right words, put the right phrases together, so that we can coerce God into paying us attention and giving us what we want. Do not heap up empty phrases. Literally, don't babble on. This is what false religions seek to do. It's like 1 Kings 18. If you ever read 1 Kings 18, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. If you haven't read it, go read it. But this is what the prophets of Baal are doing. They literally babble on and on the same things over and over all day long, hoping that Baal will consume their offering. He doesn't listen. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. There's no need to do that as a believer. And then he gives the reason why it's unnecessary in verse 8. Because your father knows what you need before you ask him. Don't do this, Christian, because God is way ahead of you. He is fully aware of what you need. And as your father, he is deeply committed to your good and you're flourishing. The way has already been prepared and paved before we come to God with anything at all. For He is our Father, and we are His children. Which leads to verse 9. Jesus begins to transition into how to pray. How not to pray is how He starts it. Now how do we pray? How do we pray? And He starts by reminding us of who we are praying to. Right? Our prayers are to be rooted in our knowledge of God. Our prayers are to be rooted in our knowledge of God. Verse 9, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. We are 
invoking or calling upon the great and glorious, yet intimately near to us, God of the universe. He's personal. He's our Father. Yet He is high above us. He's in heaven. He's concerned with our personal welfare. He is our Father. He's also capable of granting anything we ask according to His will, for He is in heaven. As our Father, we don't have to convince Him to listen. His ear and His heart are already inclined towards us, Christian. And He is our Father. He's our Father. Not just my Father, although He is, but He's our Father. Corporately, for all of us in Christ, He is our Father. We've been adopted into His family by faith in Christ, by means of the Spirit, our Father in heaven. You know, of all the the titles Jesus could have put here of God to enter us into an attitude of prayer, an approach to God. Majestic God in heaven, holy God in heaven, omnipotent God in heaven, our high and lifted up God in heaven. He chose the most intimate of all names, our Father in heaven. That's beautiful. It's the starting point of our prayers, church. Uh, So Christine and I attended a gospel community for the first time a couple of weeks ago, led by Gabe and Hannah Tucker and the Hartfields in the back. We met at their house in Homewood, super hospitable. They had ribs too, which is, I mean, come on. Um, I'm like, I'm joining this GC right now. I don't care what goes on after this. Um, It was great. It was great. We were talking about prayer, actually, from later on in Matthew 6, about anxiety and worry. Um, And some form of the question in our discussion came up of, are there things we shouldn't ask God for? You know, are there things that we shouldn't ask God for? And we had a good discussion on that question. And and obviously, there's there's some things we shouldn't ask God for simply because those things are sinful, like, Lord, help me not get caught cheating on my taxes, right? Like, it's not like... He's probably not going to help you out with that. Um, We don't want to bring God into our sinful situation, right? Because he is not sinful. He's holy. He's not going to bless that. But really, the heart of our discussion revolved around matters of of seeming insignificance. Like, did the lights just get lower? Yeah? Okay. All right. That's all right. We're good. Um, I was like, did it just get dim? Am I losing my eyesight? Um, Okay, great. Um, But just seeming insignificance. Are there things too small for the Lord to to ask the Lord of, right? Things that are too unimportant. And there were two conclusions we kind of reached in that discussion. One, God our Father cares about all matters going on in our lives. He cares. You know, if he cares about feeding birds and clothing flowers, then how much more does he care about the quote-unquote insignificant matters in your own life who are way more valuable than birds and flowers? And then second, you know, I thought about, thought about myself as a father. You know, what if my kids doubted my heart or my care or my concern enough to simply not ask me for things they need? What if they thought, well, dad, dad wouldn't care about that. It's too small. It's too insignificant. I'm just not going to bother him with it. I mean, that would cause me so much pain and sadness if my own kids doubted my care for them to the degree that they just stopped asking. It just hurts my heart to think about it, even now. You know, if, if me, as a fallen, sinful father, 
care that much about the smallest concerns of my kids, do you not think that our Father in heaven cares even more about our small needs, church? He desires for you to come to him with all things because his heart is concerned with every single detail of your beautiful life, Christian. He redeemed it in Christ, and he's going to stay connected to it through Christ. So if we know the character of the God we pray to, what then should make up the content of our prayers? What should we pray? We know who we're praying to. Now what should we pray to him? Well, this is where we come to what's called the Lord's Prayer, verses 9 through 13. Uh, If you're like me, the, the first time I was called to memorize the Lord's Prayer was for my ninth grade basketball team where we would recite it right before our coach cussed us out, all right? So it didn't mean a lot early on um, as a ninth grade basketball player, Um, but Jesus here is giving us a model on how to pray. He's not saying every time you need to pray, you need to quote this verbatim every single time over and over again, all right? That's what he tells us actually not to do in the verses before. But what the Lord's Prayer does, it gives us a framework to know how we should potentially structure our prayers, the priorities we should have in our prayers, and come to the Lord and ask Him for anything that we need according to His will. So, first thing we see, the first thing, that prayer begins with the purposes of God. Prayer begins with the purposes of God. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now there are three petitions there in those first two verses, three asks of the Lord, each of which concern the purposes of God and his agenda. And I'm going to frame up each of these petitions into prayers, okay? So you're going to see what I'm talking about. So the first petition, Father, make your name known. Father, make your name known. Hallowed be your name. It's a fancy way of saying glorify, lift up, further exalt, make your name known in all the earth. Now, I've said this to you before. I'll say it again to reiterate the fact, but God's name and God's character go hand in hand. They're inseparable. God's name expresses his character. God's character reinforces his name. I mean, it's the same with us, right? My name, when people hear Austin Baker, it carries with it some connotation to that if you know me, right? And then if my character is great, then my name will be great too, right? So they go hand in hand. It's the same thing with us. Your name and your character are oftentimes interchangeable. When people hear your name, they think something about who you are. And the request here is that the name of God, his character and his reputation would be hallowed. This does not mean, first, it does not mean that God's name would be more holy, okay? God is as holy as he's going to be, all right? He is the holiest of holies. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Holy, 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 right? It's the Lord God Almighty. Rather, it's a plea to God that his holiness, that his renown, that his deeds, that his character would receive the reverence that it's due from the people he created. There are places all throughout the world where the name of God is not hallowed, is not praised, is not recognized. And this is a prayer for that to change. You know, for the gospel to go forth into the nations and people groups, that, that should be our prayer, that his name would be hallowed 
among all people that he made. Not brought into profanity, but hallowed, lifted up. So that's the first petition. All right, second petition. Father, extend your known rule and reign. Extend your known rule and reign. Your kingdom come. Kingdom of God in the Bible refers to the moral and spiritual order which God is bringing into his broken world. And this is an already not yet. We say this all the time, but it's the tension we live in as believers. This already not yet tension. And what the tension is here is Jesus has already inaugurated, he's already begun to bring forward the kingdom of Christ, right? When he came, one of the first things he says is repent for the kingdom of God is near, right? He's bringing it in through the cross and the resurrection, the kingdom. But it has not yet reached its culmination, right? Because there's still people who don't submit their lives to the rule and the reign of Christ. Still places in this world. That is not the case. This already not yet. So if petition one is asking for God's name to be worshipped in all the earth, petition two is asking for people of the earth to humble themselves in submission to Christ's rule and reign over their lives, that the kingdom would advance, that it would go forward into all places of the world. It's why we want to pray for gospel-believing, gospel-preaching churches in our city and throughout the world. Because anytime a group of people saved by God's grace get together and worship and form a church, that is the kingdom of God coming even further. Right? Kingdom of God being set up in enemy territory, so to speak. The kingdom is advancing. So that's the second petition. We want to pray towards those ends that his kingdom would come here in Birmingham and beyond to the nations. And then the third petition regarding the purposes of God and his kingdom. Father, change people's hearts. Change people's hearts. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will and commands are obeyed perfectly in heaven, right? There's no sin in heaven, no corruption, no rebellion. His will is perfectly submitted to by the heavenly beings in the heavens. And in this third petition, we're praying that that would be true here on earth as well. That we, as the people of God, would do His will more consistently than we're doing it right now. And that comes through the recreation of people's hearts, right? When Christ saves us, He gives us a new heart. So we are being recreated, you know, right now. But we still have a war within us, as we all know, between the old person and our new desires, right? Just warring against one another inside this inner turmoil we feel. But we pray in our own hearts as a people that God's will would be done here, that it would be done in our families, individually, in our church, that He would change us and bring us into conformity to His purposes and plans for our lives and for this body. So Jesus teaching us to pray begins with the purposes of God, putting things into perspective for us, that we come to Him praying His purposes before we get to our needs. But at the same time, God is concerned for our welfare. He's concerned about every single thing that happens in your life. It's not an either or, it's a both and. So prayer starts with the purpose of God, but it also expresses our dependence upon God. Prayer expresses our dependence upon God. The next three petitions in the Lord's Prayer here, they cause us to acknowledge that everything that we need in this life 
comes from the generous, powerful hand of our Father. And the first thing we pray concerning our dependence upon God is, Father, provide for our needs. Provide for our needs. Give us this day our daily bread, verse 11. I had a quote one, one commentator I read. He said, this prayer is for our needs, not our greeds. All right? It's our needs. You know, sometimes what we think we need is not exactly what we need. It's actually an excess of what we need. But God has promised to provide for our needs. Daily bread, this, this idea of daily bread takes our mind back to the Exodus, right? People of God have been delivered from Egypt. They head out into the wilderness towards the promised land, and God graciously, literally, rains down food from heaven, food from the sky, that each day they, they go out and they gather up this flaky stuff called manna, and they make it into bread. But they're only told to gather enough for one day, just one day. On Friday, you get two days' worth because of the Sabbath, but most days, one day. And it was God showing that he was providing their daily bread, right? The bread they needed for that day. And this prayer would have been significant even to a first century Jew hearing this prayer, where oftentimes they're paid wages on a day-to-day basis. So if you don't have work, you're not sure how you're going to provide the daily bread you would need for the next day. You know, it feels kind of foreign to us who live in the West and we have walk-in pantries and we've stacked full of food and Two-door refrigerators just stocked full of stuff. It's hard for us sometimes to understand praying for daily bread, right? But I'm sure if we went around this room right now and we just shared stories of God's provision in our lives, we'd hear story after story of Him providing when we could not provide for ourselves. His provision for us when we weren't sure how we're going to pay our bills or, or feed our kids. I mean, there are parents all over this country right now praying that God would provide the daily bread of baby formula. They have kids that need to eat. Depending on God to provide food, to provide for our needs, is something God delights to do. And we come to him asking him for those things. It's a prayer of trusting God to provide what we need when we need it. It's reinforced later in chapter 6. I alluded to it before, where Jesus begins talking about worry. You know, anxiety and worry are the result of not trusting our Heavenly Father to provide what we need, right? It's hard not to be anxious and worry about some things. We can't tell the future. We don't know if we're going to make it through today. But our Heavenly Father has told us in His Word, which is true, that He will provide everything we need, everything. And He asks us to come to Him to express our utter childlike dependence upon His provision for us. Next petition. Father, remind us of your grace and mercy. Remind us of your grace and mercy. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus further speaks to this in verses 14 and 15. If you look at that, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's two caveats here to these text, these verses right here. It can seem a little confusing, right? It sounds like this is like a precondition for receiving the forgiveness of God. But I want to give you two caveats. One, this is not speaking about a forgiveness for initial salvation. All right? We say this all the time, but salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's not of works. There's nothing we do to contribute to our salvation. It's all by God's grace towards us in Christ alone. 
God's justification does not hinge on our actions as a precursor to receiving his forgiveness. It's by his grace. I mean, think about this prayer already. We are praying to our Father, right? Which already implies that we've been adopted, right? That we're sons and daughters, praying to our Father. Not everybody in this world is a son and daughter of God. That is a privilege of salvation, to be called a son and daughter of the King. So we already have forgiveness for our sins coming to this prayer, initial forgiveness for our sins. But oftentimes, I know I do this, we confuse union with Christ and communion with Christ. And I've talked about this before a little bit. But when God saves us, he permanently unites us to Jesus Christ. Christ is the head, we are the body. Christ's death is our death. Christ's resurrection is our resurrection. Christ's destiny is our destiny because we're united to Christ. That happens when we trust Christ, when he saves us. But our daily communion, our intimacy with the Lord can be disrupted because of sin. It's like if I lie to Christine. You know, am I still married to Christine? Yeah. I'm united to Christine in marriage. Is my relationship severed, not severed, but hindered because of my sin? Yeah, it is. So I need to seek reconciliation with her to restore that daily communion with the Lord or with, with Christine. And that's the same thing that's happening here. You're not saying, Lord, forgive me of sin you have not already forgiven me of. For Christ has forgiven us of all sin when he hung on the cross. We trusted in his gift of salvation. But it's saying, Lord, forgive me of this sin I confess and restore the intimacy that I've lost because of my sin. So that's the first caveat. Excuse me, this is not speaking of initial forgiveness for salvation. That's the first one. Second, this is speaking to an identifying mark of the people of God. As we have been forgiven, so we also must forgive. If we refuse to forgive other people, it speaks to our misunderstanding of just how much we've been forgiven of ourselves. I'm not saying that's easy. Not saying that doesn't take time. Not saying it's the same thing as forgiving and forgetting. I think that's garbage. God doesn't forget our sin. That's why Jesus is necessary. He looks at Christ, right? And he sees forgiveness for our sin. But not forgiving others calls our identity as Christians into question. I'm not saying that those who cease to forgive are not believers, but if the God we say we worship and follow is a forgiver and we refuse to forgive, there are reasons to question if we're truly following him. When we understand the depths of our own sin and how much we've been forgiven, we will be more inclined to forgive others when they wrong us, even those that wrong us in hard, hard ways. And then finally, sixth petition, sixth petition. Father, strengthen us when we are weak. Strengthen us when we're weak. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So what is this talking about? This is a little confusing, right? God leading us into temptation. The word there is uh, the word parasmos. It can also mean testing, right? Temptation and testing. So this is where... It's a good rule of thumb here. We'll talk more about this if you come to our equip class next week when we're talking about how to study the Bible. But we always want to let Scripture interpret Scripture, right? If scripture cannot contradict itself, which we believe it can't. 
that when we come to texts like this that are a little confusing to us, God leading us to be tempted, let's let other texts of Scripture speak into that. And one place we can go is James 1, 13 and 14. James 1, 13 and 14 says this, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, nor uh, cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. All right, so very clear. God does not tempt you to sin. It's very clear. So what is a better way to understand what Jesus is saying here in verse 13? Well, the Lord often tests us. He puts us into situations to refine us to strengthen our faith, to sharpen our character. And these are oftentimes unpleasant, right? But they are designed to accomplish the goal of making us more into the image of Jesus. He presses us, right? That's why it's it's amazing that Jesus is praying in the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, where olives were being pressed, right? Right? Olive juice pouring out, pressed, and Jesus is being pressed in that moment, tested in that moment. Will he go to the cross, right? Will he trust his Father in the heart of his Father to deliver him from death, raise him to life? So it appears here, that was a side caveat. I don't know why I said that. I pray the Spirit uses it. (laughs) But even, even though these times of testing have a purpose, it seems that Jesus here is giving us permission to pray for lessons to be learned in other ways. Lead us not into testing, Father, but teach us in other ways what it means to be a follower of you. It's a prayer for the disciples that are aware of their weakness as we are aware of our weaknesses to pray in order to avoid trials that come our way. May you sharpen us in other ways, Father. So don't lead us into testing, but deliver us from evil. So you have a preventative prayer. Don't lead us here, but a delivering prayer. But if you do, help me. Deliver me out of that. And evil doesn't here necessarily mean to sin. And there are all kinds of effects of evil in our world, right? Natural disasters, disease, poverty, cancer, AIDS, fill in the blank. So followers of Jesus are constantly aware of our own weaknesses, that when we enter into times of testing, it may make or break us, but we pray to the Spirit of God to prevail over that testing. We're always constantly aware of the need for God's presence and strength in the midst of our weakness. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, right? I praise to have the thorn in his flesh removed. Remove this from me. Three times I pray to the Lord to remove this from me. And the response from God is no. My power is made perfect in weakness. Our Father gets great glory when we come to him in desperate dependence in the midst of our weakness. So the Lord's Prayer is, is here in closing, the Lord's Prayer is an invitation It's an invitation to us to bring every concern, no matter how great or how small, before the maker and sustainer of the universe. Because it's all possible. It's all possible because of Christ. Hebrews 4 says says this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession 
For we do not have a high priest who is able to sympathize us, sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near, here it is, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You have a father that cares about you. A father that has opened the way of access for you through the blood of his son, Jesus. May we not neglect the privilege to approach the sovereign ruler of the entire universe with our needs. And may he be glorified in us and through us and through this church as we seek to do his will in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, I I pray you just continue to just continue to to put in me a an awe and a wonder that my tiny existence on a tiny planet in a tiny galaxy among billions and billions and billions of galaxies. Just give me an awe and a wonder that I matter to you. Because I do. Your son matters to you. I am in him. I've been adopted by you through the Spirit, by faith in Christ. I'm your son. We are your daughters. May we approach you with boldness and confidence that you have the heart of a father. You desire for us to bring our needs to you so that you may provide for us. And may our prayers be as big as you. And we pray things and expect great things from your hand. Teach us how to pray. Continue to teach us how to pray and put in us a desire to see your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We love you. Pray these in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to emmanuelwithanibirmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.